Book genres are so 20th century. No, 19th century. They made sense when each book needed to be placed on a physical shelf so people could find similar titles. But what if you want to find a vampire romance, a post-apocalyptic comedy, a Western mystery where the main character is an android, a World War II adventure with magic, or a story based around a character of any race or religion or gender, set in any time or any place you choose. Scribble now brings searching for books into the 21st century, even if you're looking for one set in the 17th. Find the books you'll love by selecting the story elements that matter to you at scribble.com. You'll never look for books the same way again. Search by story elements only at scribble.com. That's S-C-R-I-B-L dot com. G'day, this is Lynn. And hey, this is Kat from the Lipstick Aliens podcast. Welcome to episode 16. Seventh Son, Book 2, Deceit. A podcast novel written by J.C. Hutchins. Read by the author. For more information about this novel, please visit www.jchutchins.net. Hi, this is Cory Doctorow, author of the new short story collection Overclocked, Stories of the Future Present, downloadable from craphound.com slash overclocked or in finer bookstores everywhere. I'm here with your recap for the week, the story so far. In the last chapter, the story resumed in the ghost town of Prophecy, Texas, where Father Thomas, Jack, and Kilroy 2.0 struggle to solve John Alpha's final riddle. Find the A in Maine. Using his computer expertise, Kilroy 2.0 realized the solution was the letter A represented in binary code. The clones soon found themselves at a website address based on that code. Alpha had left instructions for them there, which led the trio to the villain's home base, the high-tech converted interior of the town's colossal water tower. The headquarters had been abandoned, save for a computer monitor with a live video feed of Special K, a former understudy of Kilroy 2.0, who was now in the employ of John Alpha. Special K taunted the men, then promised to reveal Alpha's location for a price. The condition? One of the clones would remain in prophecy while the others continued their trek. As the chapter came to a close, Special K revealed that clone's name. It was Jack the geneticist and father of twin daughters. Chapter 22 Brownlow Point is a small spike of land that forms the west side of Camden Bay, Camden Bay being a small part of the Buford Sea, Josephine Devlin said as she drove the jeep back toward the village. You're heading to the tippy top of the state. It's nearly a straight shot north from here, over the Brooks Range you'll be practically staring at the top of the world. John turned to Mike, who was in the back seat. Why does Alpha want us to go there? Mike shook his head. In the mirror, his eyes locked with Josephine's. It's in the wildlife refuge? Brownlow Point? That's right, she said. She squinted through the windshield, watching the snow-packed road. The headlights weren't doing much good in this surreal, murky twilight. It's almost on the northeastern border of Anwar. You'll be in the 1002, Inupiat country, 
caribou country. I thought this was caribou country, Mike said. Pretty much all of Anwar is caribou country, Josephine replied, downshifting the jeep. The herd's always moving. Porcupine caribou follow a migration pattern that starts up north and sweeps down to this area before going north again. More than a hundred thousand travel in the herd. It's an awesome sight. They say the caribou survived the Ice Age. Imagine that. And the 1002? John prompted. Is that the protected land where the oil's supposed to be? Yes, but it's much more than that. It's the calving grounds for the caribou herd. Jimmy Carter did a great thing when he nearly doubled the size of the refuge back in 1980. The caveat, of course, was Sector 1002. It's the portion of Anwar that can be open for development whenever your Congress wants to do so. Since 80, it's been a screaming match. Oil companies and Anupiates say there can be sustainable coexistence between drilling and the herd. There's a lot of money to be made. Money for the state and for us natives. Gobs of money for us natives. I thought your people are opposed to opening Anwar for drilling, John said. Almost all of us are, Josephine said. Do you know what Gwich'in means in our language? People of the caribou. We depend on the herd. It's given us food, clothing, virtually everything for more than 20,000 years. Even now, with our VCRs and TVs and damned cans of Chef Boyardee, the caribou are a link to our identity. She turned the jeep onto the main village road, smiling at a joke only she could hear. I've sat in on village council meetings where oil execs have told us that everyone in Vashrai Ka'u is guaranteed a six-figure annual salary for doing nothing more than we do now, if we support oil exploration. Oh, the siren song. But what price heritage, you know? Some things can't be bought. John said. Well, that's how we see it. You're not just talking about jeopardizing a herd of animals. It's the ways of a people, a culture. Who would the Gwich'in be after the oil in the 1002 dried up? What would we be? She chuckled. <laughs> Listen to me. I sound like our chief. The Inupiates have a different perspective, I gather, Mike said. Josephine nodded. A lot of them support development. Of course, they live in the 1002 and have the most to gain. We respect them as a nation. They're good people. But it's a different life up there. Just a few hundred miles to the west of them, the oil pumps are ringing at Prudhoe Bay. I've wondered if I'd have a different opinion if I were raised there instead of here. Probably, I admit it. But the coastal plain is where life begins for the caribou. It's where survival begins for us. John looked down at the piece of caribou hide he had taken from the hand-carved box. He eyed the words scrawled across its surface. What's a dewline? He asked. Some kind of weather thing? Josephine barked a laugh, startling them. You really don't know much about Alaska, do you? She said. John shook his head. Uh, no, I guess it's just the way it is for most of us down in, uh, the lower 48, Josephine said, smiling. Out of sight, out of mind. It's natural. You want to know about the distant early warning line, the dew line. Sounds military, Mike said. It is, or rather it was. I don't know too much about it, but there's probably a station waiting for you at Brownlow Point, or what's left of one. The jeep was passing the last of the Arctic Village cabins now. The access road to the airstrip was just ahead. So what's the dew line? John asked again. Think of the entire northern border of Alaska as a horizontal spine, Josephine said. And every 50 miles or so along the spine, basically the 69th parallel, are these prefab radar and communication stations, dew line stations. I've seen pictures. My dad used to build them. Most of the stations were small operations, a few buildings and a couple of steel towers with those Epcot balls on top. Geodesic domes, John said. Airports have them. Radar dishes inside. Right, she said. Anyway, they were built in the 50s. 
From what I've heard, the Pentagon watched the Russians build the bomb in the late 40s and reckoned that if they were ever to attack America, they'd fly them in with bombers from the north, over Canada. Dewline was an early warning system, Mike said. John spoke up. Well, who runs them now? Nobody. They switched off the Dewline in the 60s, I think. The airstrip was a quarter mile away now. So what's awaiting us at Brownlow Point, then? Mike asked. Empty buildings? That I couldn't tell you. There was big talk up here in the 90s about the Army Corps of Engineers cleaning up the Dewline sites, tearing the buildings down, clearing up the waste that had been left behind. If Brownlow Point was on that list, the only thing that should be waiting for you is a bare patch where the station used to be. Sounds anticlimactic, John said. God, let's hope so, Mike said. The Aurora landed ten minutes after Josephine's jeep had pulled up to the airstrip. Brad and Dennis, the two men who had initially welcomed the clones to Arctic Village, emerged from their control building to gawk at the Onyx jet. John couldn't blame them. With the tendrils of vapor rising from its surface in the darkness, the Aurora's streamlined form looked more spacecraft than aircraft. They climbed out of the jeep. Mike shook Josephine's hand. John gave her a hug. Again, thank you, John whispered, holding her tight. You've helped more than you'll ever know. Please give our best to your family and to your chief. I will, Josephine said, returning the embrace. She pulled away and looked at them, her eyes sharp. I know less about you now than when you first arrived. You're mysterious men, John and Mike Smith from Virginia. With secrets of your own, I think. You have no idea, Mike said. Come on, John, it's time to go. John began to follow Mike to the Aurora and then turned one last time. Josephine was still standing by her jeep. Be careful, she said. John forced a smile. We'll try. You'll find him, won't you? She asked. You'll find him and put him out of his misery? John nodded. We're close to finding Alpha, the man behind this. He paused, thinking. I know it. I just know it. It's a feeling. Josephine Devlin smiled. I wasn't talking about him. I'm talking about Doug. My brother's still out there, isn't he? Still out there killing. Stop him. Please. John flinched. How? He opened his mouth to ask. Just a feeling, Josephine said. We are not a simple people, John Smith. She raised a hand. He raised his and then walked toward the Aurora. The gear was quickly stowed in the jet's passenger compartment, the men strapped securely in their air flight chairs. The walls of the passenger cabin trembled as Pilot Leland turned the jet into its takeoff position, and then the whirlwind overtook them once more. Minutes later, the voice of Pilot Leland crackled in his ears. We're coming over what the GPS nav system says is Brownlow Point, he told them. I've got it on my scope right now. The voice paused. Ah, uh, you boys aware of what's going on down there? The clones exchanged glances. John shrugged. The Dewline site must not have been cleared yet, he said. Mike nodded. Leland, you're probably just seeing what's left of an abandoned radar station. Just a few small buildings. It's nothing to worry about. Negative. You're not seeing what I'm seeing, the pilot said. Hang on, I'll pipe the feed to a terminal back there. The monitor bolted to the wall before them, flickered to life. John gazed at the picture. It was a bird's eye view, displayed in the green hues of infrared. The dark edge of Camden Bay cut a jagged arc into the land below. There it was, Brownlow Point. 
but there wasn't an abandoned dew-line station there, and there certainly wasn't a bare patch where the station used to be. Residing on the land instead was an armada of mud-spattered trucks, buildings, and trailers. A manic network of wide roads crisscrossed between the buildings, across the landscape, out into the wilderness. Monstrous land-moving equipment, bulldozers and semi-rigs trundled across the roads. A dozen colossal machines, some of them dump trucks, were parked beside a huge building at the network's center. Two airstrip runways could be seen about a mile or so away. What is that? Mike gasped. It's a city, John whispered. It's a goddamn city. You've been listening to Seventh Son, Book Two, Deceit, a podcast novel written by J.C. Hutchins. Thanks for listening. Please visit www.jchutchins.net for more information about this novel and about the author. Theme music generously provided by Cell Dweller. Please visit the band's website at celldweller.com and at myspace.com slash celldweller. Graphic elements for website art and album art for this podcast generously created by Magic Forge. Please visit the company's website at magictorch.com. This recording and its contents are copyright 2006 J.C. Hutchins.